0: Many of us are familiar with diets. I am all too familiar with diets, not in succeeding, but oftentimes failing. And over the many tries of different diets, I've learned that you can split them into almost two categories. The first category are those diets which we follow. For example, keto, Atkins, or paleo. And often we say, I'm on keto, I'm on Atkins, I'm on paleo. Then in the second category, there are diets which we identify ourselves with. I am a vegetarian. I am a vegan. I am a pescatarian. A young girl, when I was serving in the youth group, told me she had become pescatarian, and I was so scared because I sounded like a heretical subsect of Presbyterianism. and I said, oh no, what is that? And she told me, well, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat fish. I said, good Lord, that sounds even worse. <laughs> when we think about diets, whether we follow them or whether we identify with them, the main criteria is, in order to follow or to be identified with it, We follow the standards, the rules. If you are a vegetarian, you don't eat meat. If you are on keto, you eat a lot of bacon. This is much the same with Christianity. The bodily resurrection of Christ is a distinctive to followers of Christ who identify themselves with him as Christians. Meaning, you cannot be a Christian Without holding to this truth that Jesus was raised on the third day in bodily form. And so today we'll look at our gospel message that the resurrection of Jesus completes the good news of the gospel. And we'll look at three points new beginning, new body, new breath. Brother of mine told me the fourth point should be new balance, but I, I didn't know how to work that in, so we'll forego that one. A new beginning, a new body. And lastly, a new breath. So the first point. We see that in the new beginning, the resurrection is taking place. If you look in your Bibles in verse one, it says, "Now on the first day of the week, verse 19 on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. For John, who is writing this, time is most often used to convey a theological point, not a chronological one. For John, time is not so much chronological, but theological. He uses time to convey something we ought to be picking up on or know about God. Compared to the other gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that there are differences in terms of how they tell the gospel narrative. But this point is unanimous. In all four gospels, we see that they begin the resurrection and refer it to the first day, meaning that it is a new beginning a new era, a new age, a new epoch, a new dawn. It is the start of something new. It's significant. John begins his gospel with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, in him was life. Creation started with the Word of God being spoken. And now recreation starts with the Word who became flesh. In other words, the beginning started with the pre-incarnated Christ, but here today in our text we see the new beginning starts with the resurrected Christ. This means that it is the new beginning for life and the end for sin and death. It's the start of life, everlasting, and it's the end of eternal death. Hallelujah, this should cause us to celebrate. This gives us hope. This is a new beginning, a fresh start. And so he promises to all who receive him and believe in his name. He gives the right to become children of God and no longer children of sin. In fact, the resurrection of Christ is so significant now, the ancient church moved the time of worship from Saturday to what we know it today, Sunday. The resurrection marks the first day of the last days of the old era. The old is passing away, and the new has come, brothers and sisters. The old days under the curse of sin is passing, and the new age of life has begun in Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We see this furthermore as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruits from the grave, and his followers are the harvest that will follow. Paul continues. That if Christ had not been raised, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sin. If Christ remained in the grave, he wasn't resurrected, then our belief in him means nothing. But we see here in John, in his gospel, he gives us a rather graphic showing of Jesus' resurrection. And though we read it, and we hear it, and we are being told it, John is recording this in such a way as if to almost... Show us. If we look in verse 1 through 8, we are told that Mary Magdalene is at the tomb of Jesus and sees that the stone that was covering the entrance was moved. She naturally concludes that someone has moved his body. She runs and tells Simon Peter and the other disciple, who we know to be the author of this gospel, John. Upon hearing this, Peter and John then run to the tomb and it's interesting, I don't know why he notes this, but John beats Peter on the foot race. That's nice, you're writing the gospel, you can add some of those good details. They get there, and they tell us what they see. The linen cloths that was wrapped around Jesus' dead body was laying there without the body. And the cloth that wrapped Jesus' head was folded up separate from the cloth that wrapped his body and laid aside. What John wants us to think about is that if the body had indeed been moved, it would not make sense that they unwrapped Jesus and moved his dead body naked. If it were his followers that moved him, They would never shame their master by dragging his dead, naked body. If it were grave robbers, it's hard to believe that they would take the time to undress this man and take and drag his dead, naked body. Something else is going on. If the Christian religion was a fabricated story or a cover-up, there is no sensible reason that the fabrics that covered Christ would have been left Behind. No, John is telling us that Christ had not been moved. He had been raised. Christ was not moved. Christ was raised. Jesus, at his resurrection, shed off the coverings of death and unwrapped his head coverings so that we would see he is alive. You know, we often, in the Christian lingo, refer to the empty grave, but we must remember, the grave may have been empty of the body, but it was filled with proof that Jesus lives. The grave is empty, and the grave is full. The body is not there, but the proof remains. So we move to our second point, the body. Upon resurrecting, Jesus appears now, To his loved ones. In verses 11 through 18, Jesus appears to Mary. Mary is the first one to encounter the resurrected Jesus. And we see as the good shepherd would, Jesus calls her by name, Mary. Upon hearing, Mary recognizes his voice and calls him Rabboni. And we are led to believe that she was so filled with joy that she clung to his physical body. Though it was the same recognizable Jesus, he was in his new, or more accurately, his renewed body of glory. Jesus then tells her to not cling to him, but rather to go tell the other disciples that he has risen and that he must ascend to the Father. But it's interesting the way he says it. He says, I am going to my Father, also who are your fathers. I'm going to my God, the God who is also your God. Go and tell my brothers this. Upon the resurrection of Christ, the language that Jesus seals and repeats again is this familial language that those who follow him, he now considers not just friends, but brothers. That as he calls God Father, we call him Father too. That as he calls him God, you and I say, my God, my God. Jesus here tells Mary to go and tell the other disciples. Tell them. If the Christian religion was made up, it seems unlikely again here that a woman would be the first to witness the resurrection of Christ. Women at this time would have no legitimacy to claim such truths, nor even be written about in such significant accounts. Especially one, as Luke tells us in his gospel, Mary, who was possessed by several demons at one point. If they wanted to create a religion, wouldn't they have done it with someone who isn't a woman at that time who had no cultural relevance? Would they use a person who was once proven to be possessed by demons? No, John doesn't write and make up. John writes what he sees and knows. While the men who call themselves disciples of Christ are hiding behind locked doors in fear, Jesus reveals himself first to the weak and meager, the poor in spirit, for we know they are blessed. This should be an encouragement, an inspiration, not only to our women here, but for all who are considered low. Jesus comes to you first. If you are poor in spirit, if you are weak and afraid, friends, Jesus is close. In verse 19 through 20, we see now that Jesus appears to his disciples. The men are behind locked doors in fear of what the Jews would do to them. They've crucified their master. Now they're coming for the rest. And they locked themselves in a room, afraid. Everything they thought and believed, the one they followed is dead, they presumed. It is over. They'll do away with us, too. So they hide. Yet in this moment, Jesus appears to them. He appears through locked doors and he says, Shalom, peace be with you. Has he not already told them that he will leave but soon return? That they will mourn but it will be turned into joy? Has he not told them that he will give them a peace not of this world? If they have ever doubted, now they see indeed that he has returned, that their grieving, their mourning is turned to joy, that they have a peace that they don't even understand, but a peace that sinks deep. Now they see. Upon proclaiming peace to his disciples in verse 20, Jesus shows them his hands, and his side, the scars that marred the chosen one, the scars that brings many sons to glory. Again, when Jesus appears through the locked doors, we see that it is in the same body, but a renewed body. It is not the same earthly body limited by the material, but a renewed, glorious body, unbound by the chains of this world. If there is still any doubt in us, John gives us an even more graphic account. When we look at verse 24 to 29, Jesus appears to Thomas. Thomas, who is often referred to in the church as Doubting Thomas. We're told. Now Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them. Perhaps his doubts and fears were so great that he didn't want to be in the same room with the others in fear of being caught all together. Perhaps he was so scared and afraid that he decided to hide apart from the group. Well, the disciples who encountered Jesus already tells Thomas. They say, Thomas, we've seen the risen Lord. We've seen him. But Thomas replies in verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand on his side, I will never believe. And I think often when we hear this from Thomas, we think that Thomas's posture is that of this. I'm not gonna believe that. I can't believe that until I see it and touch it. No way. But rather, I think Thomas here, in his fear, in his doubt, when he says this, it's not a posture of prove it to me. Perhaps it's a posture of deep doubt, but wanting to believe. Perhaps it is such where he says and echoes the words of another man, I believe, but help my unbelief. Thomas says, unless I see his hands and mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand on his side, I know I will never believe. Perhaps he is admitting here a frailty. Perhaps he is showing here an honest look of where his heart is at. He wants to believe, perhaps, yet he knows he needs more. Now, should we shame Thomas for this disbelief and doubt? Or rather, do we feel the same way? How often do we plea and cry out to the Lord, Lord, show me, give me a sign, lead me, open doors, close doors. I know you are faithful. Because I'm so weak, will you show me? Will you lead me? Will you comfort me? Intangible tangible ways. I believe this is what Thomas is asking. And if this is what Thomas is asking, how does the Lord Jesus respond? We're told that eight days later, all the disciples are gathered once more behind locked doors. But this time, Thomas is there, and Jesus appears again as he did before, passing through the locked doors, uttering the same words, peace be with you. In the world you will have tribulation, but in me you will have peace. Peace be with you. And then what does our Lord Jesus Christ do, but look at Thomas directly and says, put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe again here with our natural assumption of thomas's doubt we assume that jesus here rebukes thomas with this proof but i think the lord jesus draws near to him and knows his fear knows his doubting and addresses it in the way thomas needs so that he may believe jesus draws near the one who doubts. So brothers and sisters, I will say to you, if you are still doubting and you are afraid, and in your heart you say, I believe, but help my unbelief, be encouraged. And Jesus draws near to those in that situation, in those shoes. We're told Thomas touches. Thomas believes. What is common to all these witnesses are that They had tremendous fear. They felt alone. They felt hopeless. They were afraid for their lives. Yet Jesus appeared to them. Friends, brothers and sisters, this should encourage us. Is it not oftentimes when we are at our lowest, when we have sunk down to our deepest fears, when we feel the most alone, when we cry out to God, Christ is peace. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. The risen Lord is the one who draws near. However, there is one thing that is odd, one thing that is strange. Christ shows up in his renewed body, but still bears the wounds of the cross. Why does he still bear the marks? If his body was renewed, it would make sense that it was completely renewed. Why still bear the marks? Now, it's unlikely that our renewed bodies will bear marks, yet Christ's does. Perhaps it is because by dying the death we should have died, he bears the marks we should be bearing. In other words, as a fellow minister put it simply, perhaps... It is a sign that Christ indeed took our punishment and bears its mark to show that we get off scot free. That we do not bear the marks we should. That we do not die on the cross as we deserve. But in fact, Christ hangs there for us. And in fact, that Christ bears the wounds we should be bearing. We will have these same renewed bodies when we are raised. And scripture doesn't give us too much detail on the specifics. But what we can find confidence in is that those marks that Christ specifically bears are his alone. It marks our Savior's love for us There are wounds of the punishment that we deserve by the cross where we should have died. The marks of Christ show us that we do not have to bear those marks. We are promised by the gospel that just as Christ was raised from the dead, he will also raise us up and lose not one. That all that the Father has given into his hand, he will lose not one, but on the last day, the risen Lord will raise his followers. Be encouraged. Death is but a shadow of glory. Be encouraged. Death is but a shadow of glory. The third and final point, the new breath. Upon the new beginning of Jesus' resurrection, upon appearing to his disciples in a new, renewed body, we see here, the new breath by which Jesus sends. In verses 21 to 23, Jesus gives and Jesus sends. So the saying goes, he equips those he calls. Jesus says that just as the Father has sent him into the world to be the good news, he is sending them out into the world to bear the good news. Brothers and sisters, though we do not bear the same wounds as our Savior, He carries, excuse me, we carry the message of what those wounds mean. Jesus then breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Language here of Jesus breathing on them is often linked to two places in the Old Testament. First, in Genesis 2-7, where God breathes life into man in the beginning of creation. Second in Ezekiel 37.9 where God breathes life into the dead in the valley of dry bones. It is by this new breath of Christ now the church begins. It is by this new breath he takes men of dust and makes them men of heaven as Paul would say. Jesus breathes evoking the understanding of creation and the the dead being raised upon his disciples. He gives them the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. And he sends them out. Jesus then talks about forgiving sin. By this, Jesus is saying that he has given his followers the authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sin in such a way that by virtue of its proclamation, the forgiveness of God is given to them in the name of Jesus. What we're trying to say here is that when Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. That he doesn't mean that we have the final say. What he is saying is he has equipped us in such a way as he sends us out, we are charged to proclaim the forgiveness of sin found in God. So he sends us. We do not have the authority to forgive sin in the grand way, but we have the authority of Jesus' name who can indeed forgive. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are called to do, to proclaim the forgiveness of sin that has been accomplished by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. In here, in this room... Two have been called to preach to a hundred. But right now, you, the hundred, are being called to preach to the thousands. Brothers and sisters, this is not a charge just for men in ministry. This is a charge to all who follow him to take this good news of forgiveness of sin to the ends of the earth. The two here have been called to a hundred, but the hundred are now being called to the thousand. Hashtag Bulgaria. Hashtag Myanmar. Hashtag coffee meets bagel is my mission field. I'm just kidding. Brothers and sisters, God is now calling us, not just those who have been ordained, but those who he calls brothers, those whom the Father calls children. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he sends us out. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said this of the man who is called to the ministry and to preach. But I'm about to do and commit a classic crime here. I'm going to take a quote out of its context just this once, and I think Charles will be okay with it. This, he says, addressing specifically men of ministry who have been called to preach. But if he doesn't mind, I will stretch it to apply it to the priesthood of all believers, which are you guys. Listen to what he says. Feel the fire in which he says it about preaching God's word. Begin, quote, A man who has really within him the inspiration of the Holy Spirit calling him to preach, cannot help it. He must preach. As fire within the bones, so will that influence be until it blazes forth. Friends may check him. Foes criticize him. Despisers sneer at him. The man is indomitable. He must preach if he has the call of heaven. All earth might forsake him. But he would preach to the bare mountaintops. If he has the call of heaven, if he had no congregation, he would preach to the rippling waterfalls and let the brooks hear his voice. He could not be silent. He would become a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. I no more believe it possible to stop ministers than to stop the stars of heaven. I think it no more possible to make a man cease from preaching if he is really called than to stay some mighty waterfall by seeking it in an infant's cup to catch the rushing torrents. The man who has been moved of heaven, who shall stop him? He has been touched by God, who shall impede him? With an eagle's wing he must fly. Who shall chain him to the earth? With a seraph's voice he must speak. Who shall seal his lips? And And when a man does speak, as the Spirit gives him utterance, He will feel a holy joy akin to that of heaven. And when it is over, he wishes to be at his work again. He longs to be once more preaching. Is not the Lord's word like a fire within me? Must I not speak if God has placed it there? End quote. Brothers and sisters, I shall preach Not because it is my job as a pastor, but I shall preach because as the Lord has placed his word upon me, there is a fire on my bones. It is my duty, it is my delight. Many of you have not been called to the pulpit. In fact, you have been called to a far grander audience. Will you preach? May it be a duty. May it be a delight. May the word of God be in your heart as a burning fire shut up on your bones. Ignite and preach. Preach the good news of Christ's resurrection. Preach the forgiveness of sins. Preach the hope that stands the test of time. Preach the peace that transcends all things here on this earthly world. Preach Christ's life death, resurrection. Preach that he is alive. He is alive. He is alive. Let me end by how we started, by asking you this question. Who do you follow? Who do you identify yourself with? A Christian follows the resurrected Christ. A Christian identifies with the living God. Without the resurrection of Christ, our faith would be futile. The good news of the gospel would be incomplete. It would be a dead religion that should have been left in the grave. Yet the word of God tells us today that the resurrection of Jesus completes the good news of the gospel. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Now, parents of young children, let me speak to you directly in that dark, lonely room, because I know in the thousand little moments of this morning alone, it is hard to see the hope of the resurrected Christ. Verse two of this song says, how sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still the calm assurance. This child can face uncertain days because he lives. Jesus concludes our text today in verse 29 by saying, Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. John saw and believed. Thomas touched and believed. By faith, the Spirit now leads us to hear and believe. Brothers and sisters, will you believe what you hear? Friends, brothers, and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus completes the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. I want to give you some time before the Lord to let the gravity of this truth sink again, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that in him there is forgiveness of sin, that we can face our tomorrows, that all fear is gone, because he lives and we know he holds the future. Can we spend a moment responding in prayer?